Let's pray together. Lord God, we pray that you would choose to speak now. Lord, you've given us your word. We believe this word to be without error. We believe this word to be your word, inspired that we created fallen beings might know you, the creator, perfect, sinless, and that we might know you so that we might have a relationship with you, apart from which we have no hope, we have no peace, we have no joy, we have no reason to tap our feet and smile in time with the music just played for us. Lord, without you, our life ceases to have significance beyond the now. But in your word, we find hope. We find joy. For we find direction. Direction back to you. In whom is life. Lord God, would you choose to speak, we pray now, through this word. Father, would you help us in this season of excitement and joy to set aside the, the many things pending and to meet with you. Father, so that we might more deeply, richly, fully appreciate the union that you give to us, your church, by grace, through faith, in this baby born in Bethlehem, who grew to be a man, Jesus Christ, who lived, died, and rose again, so that we might have life. Lord, we pray that you would speak now for your glory, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, this morning we come to the end of our study of Matthew's account of Jesus' birth. And so if you have your Bibles, let me invite you to open them with me to the first book in our Bible's New Testament, the Gospel of Matthew in chapter 2. Matthew 2 and find verse 19 this morning, Matthew 2, 19. Over the past four weeks, we've seen together how our author, a former tax collector, come Christ follower, one of Jesus' original 12 disciples, Matthew's purpose in writing his gospel, was to convince his fellow Jews that Jesus is the promised Christ. So, unlike Luke's gospel that was originally written to a predominantly Gentile readership, Matthew was writing as a Jew for Jews. And therefore, we noted, he begins by giving a genealogy, demonstrating Christ's ties to Israel's founding father through her most famous kings, all in fulfillment of messianic prophecy. For Matthew, Jesus wasn't just some first century miracle worker who'd raised local hopes that Rome's oppressive rule might soon be at an end. He was the son promised to the patriarch Abraham through whom all nations would be blessed. He was the king promised to David who would build a temple, a place where all nations would come to worship and whose throne would never end. He was the sign promised to Ahaz, who would be born of a virgin, whose name would be Emmanuel, God with us. And he was the Savior, 
promised by the angel to Joseph who would save his people from their sins. Together, we've seen Matthew demonstrate how Christ's birth was unlike any birth before it or after it. Jesus came in fulfillment of promises made to Israel hundreds of years before, promises over which he had absolutely no control and yet which clearly confirm him as the Messiah. But Jesus wasn't only a Semitic Savior, was he? For Matthew records Magi came from the east following a star, a sign that Herod didn't understand and about which his chief priests and religious leaders, they didn't seem to care. Matthew's gospel clearly portrays Jesus, not as a culturally exclusive political liberator out for social justice, but a globally engaging, redeeming Savior who despite Herod's best efforts couldn't be eliminated because Christ's plans, God's plans, surpass people's power. And despite the pain many experience as they follow him, we noted last week, God's purposes remain. And today we arrive at chapter 2's final section, which falls under the NIV, if you have an NIV subheading, the return to Nazareth. And so would you follow along now as I read our text? It begins with verse 19. Matthew writes, After Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, Get up, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. For those who are trying to take the child's life are dead. So he got up, took the child and his mother, and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning in Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Having been warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee, and he went and lived in a town called Nazareth. So was fulfilled what was said through the prophets. He will be called a Nazarene. And may God bless the public reading of his word. Church, as with each of the texts that we have studied to this point, the key for our author is the prophecy which Christ fulfilled. These prophecies have, have been the hooks on which Matthew has hung his narrative, so to speak, because without these prophecies, Christ's arrival, while unique, it would have had no more significance than that of any other child born around the same time. His escape to Egypt would have probably reflected nothing more than a young family's desire to have a fresh start in a warmer climate without the heavy oversight of a foreign oppressor and their return, likely the simple desire to once again be with family rather than raising a, a child on their own. They desired to go home, be with family due to homesickness. However, when considered in light of God's promises, everything takes on a completely different look, doesn't it? And so, with the significance of this prophecy noted, I'd like us to begin by examining it before we consider the means of its fulfillment. Basically, I'd like us to start with the very last phrase there of verse 23, and then go back to verse 19 and walk our way through this text, ending with the first half of verse 23. So, a slightly different approach than we've taken to this point, but one that I believe will help us to see the central truth for us today which is that God brings about his plans through both natural and supernatural means, all for his glory. God brings his plans to pass through natural and supernatural means for his glory. So, to this end, let's consider the prophecy to begin with. The prophecy. Matthew concludes chapter 2 there with these words. So was fulfilled what was said through the prophets. He will be called a Nazarene. 
Now, you notice how, if you have an NIV, it puts those final words in that sentence in quotes. You know, th those who have the ESV will see the same grammatical form. However, the Holman, for those who use the Holman, reads, Then he went and settled in a town called Nazareth to fulfill what was spoken through the prophets, that he will be called a Nazarene. Now, the King James reads similarly only in 16th century English for those who like that. My point in mentioning these differences in approach to translation is to highlight the fact that this statement here isn't drawn from a single text or texts in the Old Testament. In other words, Matthew isn't referring here to a specific prophet or prophets like he did previously in verse 17, which we saw together last week, where he names Jeremiah. Or to the prophet Hosea he pointed to back in verse 15. Or the prophet Isaiah quoted verse 6. Here verse 23, the prophets to whom Matthew is alluding remain anonymous. As does this reference. Because the term Nazareth, in fact, isn't contained in the Old Testament. The archaeologists have determined that this town, this polis, as it was named in the original language in which Matthew wrote, it only came into being during the final years of the Old Testament period. About the first century, Nazareth had a meager population of some 450 people, and it was dwarfed by the nearby cities of, of Sepphoris and, and Antipas. Basically, Nazareth was an obscure rural village in the Galilean hills, which was as a rather newly founded settlement. It doesn't even feature in the Old Testament. And therefore, as I mentioned, the search for the term Nazareth, if you were to pull up Logos or version and do a search for Nazareth, it'll only yield New Testament results. So the question that follows is if Nazareth isn't mentioned in the Old Testament, then who are the prophets to whom Matthew's referring? And what was their prophecy? And the answer is, we don't know. And there are a host of propositions that have been put forward over the years, some of them more plausible than others, but none can claim to be the answer because the bottom line is Scripture doesn't say. And, and I believe, church, that it is this very silence, scriptural silence, that serves as the most probable explanation as to what Matthew is doing here. And so let me explain. For anyone to claim fulfillment of messianic prophecies and to hail from Nazareth would have been to, as one commentator describes it, it would have been to in, invite ridicule. The name itself is a term of dismissal, if not of actual abuse. And so the very non-existence of Nazareth in the Old Testament, it's, it's being a scriptural non-entity, if you will, made any Nazarene's claim to be the Messiah an absolute joke. And, and church, don't we see this very reaction in the scriptures themselves? If you were to flip over to John's gospel, chapter 1, we have there the account of Jesus' calling his first disciples. Verse 43, we read that the next day Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. Finding Philip, he said to him, follow me. Philip, like Andrew and Peter, was from the town of Bethsaida. Philip found Nathanael and told him, we have found the one Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the prophets also wrote. Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Now, do you remember what Nathaniel's reaction was? The man blurts out, John tells us, verse 46, he blurts out, Nazareth, can anything good come from there? 
Here's a young man. He's a native of Cana. It's a town located several miles from Nazareth. And he reacts in that manner. So what would have been the reaction of those in Judea? The big city folks. You know, when I was, when I was considering where I would go to college, I thought that every city in America was big. I thought it was. Just because it was American, it had to be big. I mean, coming from Bulawayo, Zimbabwe, that had no fast food restaurants at all, a tiny airport way outside of town, and nothing even remotely close to a Walmart. I figured that everything American had to be big. But then I arrived in Arkadelphia, Arkansas. Arkadelphia, Arkansas is a town of less than 6,000 people at Washita. Baptist University, a school of only 1,600 students. And I realized very quickly, not everything in America is big just because it's American. Um, whenever I would mention where I was studying, people's immediate reaction would be like, Washita, where, where is that? And then when I answered, oh, it's in Arkadelphia, Arkansas, that confused look on people's faces would only grow. As you could see them thinking, what backwoods hovel is Arkadelphia? Arkansas. No less. If these people had been using biblical language, then you could most certainly have expected them to say, what good could possibly come out of Arkadelphia, Arkansas, right? A present company accepted, of course. <laughs> the point is, the fact that Nazareth fails to feature in the Old Testament, church, I believe reflects a theme that does feature. And it's that of a Messiah who, as the prophet Zechariah foretold, would be a royal figure who was also humble. That's Zechariah 9, verse 9 and 10. He would be a shepherd whose authority would be rejected by his own sheep. Chapter 11, verse 4 through 14. David would sing in Psalm 22 of a promised king who would be despised and rejected. And then Isaiah prophesied that this promised savior would be a suffering servant. Again, 49, verse 7. Church, what I believe Matthew is doing here is demonstrating how contrary Christ's coming was to culture's messianic expectations and, and yet how consistent it was with Scripture. This is as one theologian explains, the words, he shall be called a Nazarene, represent the prophetic expectation that the Messiah would appear from nowhere and would as a result meet with incomprehension and rejection. Christ was clearly a Messiah who came from the wrong place, who did not conform to the expectations of Jewish tradition, and who as a result would not be accepted by his people. In 1965, there was a young man by the name of Cliff Harris. He played football at Desark High School in Desark, Arkansas. It's a city with a population of some 1,700 people as of 2010. As you can imagine, Desert High was Class A. And for those unfamiliar uh, with college or high school grading size, Class A, I think, is the smallest you can go without having no class. So it's the smallest in terms of athletic competition. And despite Desert having an undefeated season, their success went largely unnoticed. Surprise, surprise. Harris was the quarterback, and he was keen to play ball in college. However, due to the size and significance, or lack thereof, of Desarchai. He receives no interest from any college of note. His single scholarship offer came from a college in, of all places, Arkadelphia, Arkansas. You can see where this is going. Washita Baptist University. So Harris accepts 
He plays all four years at Washita. Upon graduation, he's so inspired, he declares himself in the NFL draft. Again, unsurprisingly, he goes unnoticed. On a whim, the Dallas Cowboys take a flyer and invite this man to their spring training camp where Harris promptly beats out all competition for the free safety position, even defeating their highly touted recruit taken in the draft. And then over the course of what would be a 10-year NFL career, Harris plays in five Super Bowls. He wins twice, six times a pro bowler. And eventually, 2011 was a finalist in the Football Hall of Fame. No one believed anything good could come out of Desert High, or Washita, for that matter. Those are just not places that you look, right, for, for quality football players. If you want to find talent, you look to Division I colleges, not NAIA teams. You look to 5A schools, not to single-A programs. You look to big cities, right, not traffic-like towns. The Point Church is just as Matthew's readers had culturally influenced messianic expectations. So do we. Think about this. How often have you heard someone say this of the gospel? That just sounds too easy. All you have to do is repent of your sin and believe in Jesus. Don't you have to perform some special work or, or strive to be good and perfect? Surely I've got to deserve God's grace. I must have to demonstrate my work. God can't give eternal life to just anyone, can he? Have you ever heard someone respond to the gospel in that way? And maybe you did at one point. Maybe you're still struggling. I believe Matthew includes these prophetic fulfillments that his readers, like us, might see just who Jesus truly is, the promised Christ, Son of God, born of a virgin, and so like us in every way, yet holy God, and so able to perfectly fulfill God's laws. Jesus lived the perfect life that we couldn't. He then took on himself our sin and died in our place so that we might be forgiven. He was buried in a tomb for three days and then rose from the dead. And now, whoever repents of their sin and believes in him no longer has to carry the burden of trying to live perfectly. Why? Because Christ has done it for you. We no longer have to make sacrifices to God for our failures because Christ became the final sacrifice for sin. And we no longer have to hope that in the end, we've done more good than bad. Because Christ clothes us with his perfection. This is the gospel which Christ fulfilled, all in accordance with the scriptures. So Matthew concludes chapter 2 with Christ's fulfillment of that prophecy. He will be called a Nazarene. But how did he get there? So let's look back now to verse 19 and, and to the events that follow, which I believe reveal the truth that God brings his plans to pass through natural means. The, the first three words of verse 19 communicate this truth as they read, after Herod died. After Herod died. Here's the man who, if, if you were with us last week, you'll remember, he attempted to assassinate Christ following his birth in Bethlehem. Herod's response to the Magi's news that a king had been born caused all Jerusalem to freak out, and rightly so. You may recall how we discussed Herod's documented defense of his throne, although 
A defense is really a misleading term because honestly, what Herod did was just destroy anyone he felt threatened his reign. He killed kin, he killed in-laws, he killed descendants of former leaders. Basically, Herod killed anyone and everyone who threatened his throne. A man desperate to preserve his life as king who was willing to do whatever it took, no matter the cost, died. Despite Herod's best efforts to thwart God's supernatural plans, he couldn't stop life's natural end, death. And church, I believe there is something to be said here regarding the manner in which Matthew records these events. Despite the numerous divine interventions or interruptions that fill these first two chapters, here's a moment in which nature simply runs its course. Matthew doesn't say, he doesn't even imply that God effected this end in any way, although he could have so clearly. If God could leave Magi from the east using a star, appear to Joseph with instructions to protect Jesus from Herod's hateful actions and ensure that Christ fulfilled promises reflecting truths made to Moses, he surely could have eliminated this despicable king. And yet we read, after Herod died, I believe that these three seemingly innocuous words communicate a profound truth regarding God's interaction with his creation. And that truth is that he works through life's natural processes to exact his supernatural purposes. Let me give you just two examples, I believe, of this truth in action. Just two examples. First, have you ever sought the Lord's guidance asked him for direction, maybe you faced a decision at one point, maybe you're facing a big decision right now, and you'd like for the Lord to lead you to make the right decision. Now, if you're like me, you would love to have an angelic visitor provide you with the answer that you need to this current dilemma, right? Wouldn't that be amazing? Beside the fear factor, <laughs> that would most certainly accompany such an experience. How wonderful would it be to have such a clear answer, divine given answer to your question? Say like, where should I go to college? What should I study when I get there? Should I get married? Who should I marry? Should I work? What work should I do? Where should I work? If it's time to retire, when is that right time? And what do I do now with all my newfound time in this retirement that I have? Wouldn't it be great to get answers to questions like this just like Joseph did? And yet in my experience, God works through the natural process of decision-making, of weighing up the pros and cons in light of biblical truth, of seeking the counsel of older, wiser, godly men and women, of asking the opinions of all of those who are going to be impacted by this decision. God works through all of these natural processes, these natural steps to bring about a result which in the end brings Him glory. So I believe that we see this truth evidenced in life's decision-making, but second and far, far more significantly in conversion. Consider how God works through the heard word of the gospel to bring about a supernatural change in the life of those who respond in faith. When we, church, when we hear the good news, proclaim, be it in a prayer, a song, a sermon, a word of testimony, whatever, God uses the natural process of hearing words that carry meaning to exact a transformation in the heart, soul, mind of the one who hears as they become convicted of sin, their need of a Savior, and convinced that Jesus is the promised Christ, the Son of God. This change is so radical that it's likened to new birth. 
In the process of conversion, just as with decision-making, God works through natural means to bring about his supernatural purposes. Herod died. And so the reasons for Joseph's Mary and Jesus' flight were no more. And thus God brought about the circumstances in which his son could be called out of Egypt, just as was prophesied. God brings his plans to pass through natural means. God also brings his plans to pass through supernatural means. And I believe we see this truth communicated in, in the two instances of angelic visitation provided there, verse 20 and 22 respectively. In the first, we read this. And the angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, Get up, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. For those who are trying to take the child's life are dead. In this first supernatural interaction of the finite with the infinite, the creature with its creator, the mortal with the divine. God speaks to Joseph through words conveyed during a dream such that Joseph responds in obedience by getting up, taking the child and his mother back to Israel. Joseph wasn't confused by what he'd experienced. He wasn't unsure of what was intended by the words employed by the angel. What he heard made sense. And we see this same supernatural occurrence in verse 22 after Joseph finds out that Herod's son, Archelaus, is reigning in Judea. And now, we aren't told where Joseph was when he became aware of Judah's new ruler, but we are informed of his reaction, aren't we? He's afraid to go there. And just let me highlight for just a moment the irony here of Joseph's response, because I believe we can all relate, at least I can. The man who's been visited at this point by no less than three angels. Three. He receives word explaining Mary's condition and encouraging him to take her as his wife by angel. He's warned to flee Bethlehem by angelic messenger. And now, just as we've noted, he's encouraged to return in a similar fashion. Yet, upon discovering Herod's son's position of authority over Judea, he's afraid to go there. And as the audience here, I'm tempted to ridicule Joseph for his lack of faith. You're wondering, how can a man who's had three supernatural encounters, how could, he, how could he fear the natural? Why is Joseph afraid? What could he possibly fear with God on his side? The God of gods who knew what Archelaus' father wanted to do before he could even do it, and who knew when Herod died and declared it safe to return. Why was Joseph afraid? But church, as much as I would like to dismiss Joseph's sentiments here as just anomalous, I share his fear. Now, granted, I've never been visited by an angel, but I have witnessed God's glorious ends as he countlessly has shown me his faithfulness. He's wrought these glorious ends through natural means, which have always reflected the truth of his character as revealed in his word. God has led me faithfully to this day. God has provided for me and my family. He has protected us. He's delivered us and promised to complete his good work in us, and yet, when my routine is thrown off by a health concern, or my finances, say, are, are adversely affected, my car breaks and I wasn't anticipating it, I succumb to fear. I begin to question why, 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 and, and I become anxious about what God has called me to, and I doubt his ability to provide. I become just like Joseph. Do you share those sentiments? Joseph was afraid. But he wasn't left to work it out for himself, was he? Verse 22 records another dream, and this time without details, in which he's warned against a return to Judea. Rather than returning to Bethlehem, his family's 
home, Joseph heads to Galilee, and ultimately to Nazareth. So was fulfilled what was said through the prophets. He will be called a Nazarene. It's interesting to note, Matthew makes no reference to Luke's tradition that Joseph and Mary previously lived in Nazareth. And it's likely because it it was of no consequence. Because Matthew's chief concern, as we've seen together, is to show us how Jesus is the promised Christ. And in this case, he's demonstrating how God brought all of this to pass through supernatural means. And church, God continues to use supernatural means to bring his plans to pass. Now, while he is no longer, no longer revealing his person plans and ways to his people by means of prophets or angelic visitors because the canon is closed, I do believe that God is still protecting, providing, and, and guiding his people through supernatural means. And I know you are aware of a number of books where authors have recorded the testimonies of God's people to this extent as he works to bring his plans in this way to pass. And I know several of our own church family whose faith journeys are marked by such supernatural intervention. However, I believe that most of us, we simply remain unaware of the many ways in which God works to supernaturally bring his plans to pass. Now, I appreciate the fact that not everybody will agree with this assessment. And some, some may deny that God continues to work in this way, while others may deny that he ceased to speak to his people as he did to Joseph. But, church, one means of God's supernatural working that no single Christian can deny is in his gracious act of salvation. For it's in this mighty work, which as we've noted, is tied to the natural means of hearing and responding, that that God works graciously and in power to take hearts that are spiritually dead and bring them to life. This is a work that only God can bring about. Conversion isn't something natural. It's in the sense that we simply decide to change. This is a supernatural transformation in which God changes us. He changes our hearts our minds, our actions, but as we've noted, this gracious work isn't one in which we're merely passive participants. For God brings this work to pass as we repent and believe. These are actions expressing attitudes which flow from our hearts as driven by God's grace and evidenced by our willed obedience, all of which glorifies God. This is why the promised Christ came. He came as Matthew records save his people from their sins. To do this, God worked through natural and supernatural means. He worked through Christ, holy man, and so as natural as you and me, and so able to stand as our substitute to be our atoning sacrifice. As fully God, Jesus is also supernatural, and therefore able to take upon himself the sins of all who would believe, dying in our place and there three days later rising from the dead. And now whoever believes in this most unassuming of saviors, Jesus of Nazareth, who didn't come as his culture expected or live as his people dictated, but who died at their hands, whoever believes in Jesus will be saved. Church, this is God's glorious plan. And it glorifies him because he's the one who saves us. I pray this your Christmas celebration this week would be marked by worship of the promised Christ. 
lived, died, and rose again so that we might have life. Would you pray with me? Lord God, you are the promised Christ. Jesus, you are God. And as we meditate on this reality and what you teach us of your ways in Scripture, Father, we are amazed at how you work through what we consider natural Natural processes common to all of life. Hearing, living, dying, words, language. Father, you have chosen to work through these natural processes to bring about a gloriously supernatural end, salvation. And Father, we recognize that this work of Conversion is supernatural, driven by your power as you raise to life the spiritually dead. Father, this is only a work that you can do, which is why it leads to your glory. And Lord, I know that many of us this morning have heard this message, this gospel. Father, and you have graciously in many hearts brought us to an understanding of what this means. It means more than just the words that we're hearing. It means life change. It means outlook distinction. It means joy and hope in, in contexts so contrary that our lives have never been the same. But God, then there are others of us who have heard this message before and yet it remains nothing but words. And it is still only a story that we've attributed to a specific season of the year and that has a, a special sentiment connected, one of joy in most cases as we give gifts and celebrate with family, but Father, it has never changed us in this joy that we see marks this guy who gets so emotional as he teaches us about it. We just don't get. Father, neither will we unless you do a work of grace and enable us to finally understand the deep truths that are here. Lord God, we ask that you would do that work this morning in the heart of anyone for whom this is true. Father, might today be the day that you flip that worldview. You bring life where there's been only death. Understanding. You connect the dots. Father, so that our lives might progress from this point forward with a meaning we could never have imagined and a joy 
that we can sing about for the world. Father, we pray this for your glory in Jesus' name.